Hello, and welcome to Mayo Talks, a brand new podcast from Mayo Clinic, featuring expert insight on today's medical issues. You can learn more about us at mayotalks.com. This week, we'll be highlighting talks from the annual Selected Topics in Internal Medicine Conference held in sunny Kauai, Hawaii. Today's talk, How to Assess Memory Complaints in the Office, presented by Dr. Erica Tung. Aloha, I am delighted to be here with all of you today and many thanks to Karen and John for putting together this amazing week for us to learn together. I don't have any financial relationships to disclose there. Uh, I do, I am a volunteer member for the Act on Alzheimer's Disease Collaboration. Okay, in our short 30 minutes here today, I want to make sure that when you go back to your office on Monday that you can make the diagnosis of dementia confidently and efficiently. So we're going to talk about what mental status tests to utilize. We'll talk about high-value laboratory and imaging studies. And then most importantly, we'll focus on how to affect successful transitions of care for your cognitively impaired patients. Unfortunately, dementia represents an epidemic on the horizon. Five million Americans suffer with cognitive impairment, a third of our patients 85 and older, and these numbers are going to double in the next 20 years. This is the leading cause of dependency and disability among U.S. seniors and one of the most expensive conditions that we take care of. And what's scariest is that this is real. Many of us in this room at some point, unless we find a cure, will develop dementia. All of us need to know about this syndrome. Even those with mild cognitive impairment, or what we call MCI, are at two times the risk for ICU admission. And we see these folks constantly developing post-operative delirium. So those of you that are in the hospital practice are seeing this happen time and time again. And what happens is that those that have unrecognized or undiagnosed dementia are at high risk for what we call crisis-driven management. So these are the folks that come to your local emergency room and they have failure to thrive, self-neglect, and they end up getting hospitalized or having urgent procedures that they may not have ever wanted. These are also the cases that we often, unfortunately, have to get adult protective services involved with. What we know is that on average, most people will have dementia, or dementia symptoms, or cognitive symptoms for six years before their provider makes the diagnosis. And less than 50% of people ever receive a formal diagnosis from their provider. And so these delays negatively impact important outcomes. This is an interesting survey of U.S. retirees. What they did in this survey is they asked people, what condition are you most afraid of getting? And so it's no surprise that most people fear getting Alzheimer's disease or dementia. But what's interesting from this study is they went on to ask people, would you want to know? Would you want your clinician to tell you? And the vast majority of people said, yes, I would want to know because I would do things differently and I would want to plan for the future. So let's take a big breath here. Let's pause and reflect on what we know. We know that dementia is a common, complicated syndrome. And we know that there's thousands of our patients that are walking around that don't know that they have this, and their family members aren't aware. And so maybe it's time that we start doing things a little differently, and we start looking at this condition from a different perspective. So 
I would urge you to think about dementia differently and, and think about it from the chronic disease paradigm, like we think about heart failure or COPD. Like other chronic conditions, dementia is a condition that lasts more than a year and requires ongoing medical attention and or limits performance of function. But we don't often think about dementia as a chronic disease. But like heart failure and COPD, these folks don't just have dementia in isolation. They have other morbidity or other comorbidities that are impacted by their memory impairment. They're at high risk for polypharmacy, functional loss, psychological distress, and they have an intense need for dedicated longitudinal care and caregiver support. We need to be thinking about the caregiver in the room as well. And the vast majority is going to fall under our purview as primary care providers. So it's really important that we know how to make the diagnosis and then follow these folks longitudinally. So for those of you that are in the subspecialty practices here in the audience today, this syndrome also impacts the care you provide. This table lists the average costs associated with common chronic illnesses, so coronary disease, chronic kidney disease, stroke, both with and without dementia. And what you can see in this um, table here in the first column is that having dementia along with the chronic disease that you often see in your offices increased the cost of care by about 30 to 40 percent. This doesn't even begin to scratch the service of the millions of dollars that our informal caregivers pay every year. So, when we think about returning back to the office on Monday, I know we're dreading going back to the office on Monday, but you're probably thinking, how am I going to do this? I have 15 minutes with my patient. If you're lucky, you might have 20 minutes with your patient. There's competing interests. Uh, you might feel a little bit um, unconfident about making the diagnosis, but what I'm here to tell you today is that it is worth your effort. Because what we know now is that if we intervene early and make the diagnosis earlier in the syndrome, we can improve our patient's quality of life by giving them good anticipatory guidance and helping them to set up supportive systems. If we intervene early, we can improve the quality of care we provide by giving them safer, more sustainable management of the other comorbidities they have, and then we can, of course, reduce decisions made in crisis mode. And now there's also some exciting evidence that suggests that if we intervene early, we can improve outcomes that matter. We can delay time to nursing home placement and, of course, improve the quality of life for both our patients and their family members. So let's talk about a case. This is a 68-year-old retired literature professor. He's in your office for his annual wellness visit or his general medical evaluation. He feels well, aside from some mild knee pain, he's got hypertension that you're managing, but he also mentions that he's having occasional word-finding difficulty. So what's the role of cognitive testing in this patient? Do not assess his cognition because the US Preventive Services Task Force recommends against cognitive screening. Assess his cognition because there's a strong recommendation from the latest US Preventive Services Task Force update. Perform a brief cognitive assessment or refer for neuropsychological testing. Okay, we're slowing down. Let's see what we see. Okay. 
So I would agree with you that, uh, that chose C, perform a brief cognitive assessment. We're in the midst of a busy uh, annual wellness visit. We're managing his hypertensive medications, his hyperlipidemia, et cetera. We need something that's going to be quick and reliable and help us to decide, is this gentleman at risk or not at risk? I can also appreciate that for those of you that chose A, B, and D, you sometimes feel like you're getting some mixed messages, right? Like this sign here. So what, what are the major societies telling us, and what does the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force tell us? So the latest update from USPSTF says the data is insufficient to assess ba the balance of benefits and risks of cognitive screening. Similarly, from those of our neighbors up north in the audience, the Canadian Task Force says recommend not screening those 65 and older. And yet, if we look to CMS, they tell us that detection of cognitive impairment is a required element of the annual wellness visit. So what do we do with this information? We're getting kind of some mixed messages here. Well, let's take a step back and think about what, what they're telling us. What the US Preventive Services Task Force is telling us is that there's not a lot of evidence for screening a general asymptomatic population. So what the US Preventive Services Task Force is saying that I probably shouldn't set up shop in the Hyatt lobby and start screening people with a mini mental status exam. But what CMS is telling us and what the um, Gerontological Society is telling us is that what we need to be doing is doing case finding. So in your patient, like our literature professor that we talked about that's having word finding difficulty or is mentioning to you that they're having new memory concerns or perhaps you get a call from their daughter who's concerned about their, um, her father's memory impairment, this is the person that you need to make the diagnosis in and not run away or um, sugarcoat the diagnosis. So what are we going to do in the office? We're at the annual wellness visit, and we want something that's going to be quick, reliable, and help us differentiate those at risk from those not at risk. So the three tests we're going to talk about are the MINICOG, the MIS, and the 88. This is a nice screening algorithm from the Alzheimer's Disease Association that gives you a paradigm for how to think about um, conducting one of these tools during a general medical evaluation. So they recognize that you need something that's very fast. What I would tell you about the three uh, instruments that we're going to talk about is that these could also be easily performed by another member of your care team. So a member of your allied health care team could do this. Um, these have also been validated with nurses or uh, medical assistants administering these tests when they're trained. And so what it's telling us is that, well, if the person is having any subjective symptoms or if we're concerned about their cognition, we'll do one of these brief structured assessments, and then if it's abnormal, we'll bring them back and do a full dementia evaluation. If you have the luxury of time and want to go straight to the evaluation, that's acceptable too. The pearl I want you to take away from this slide is that I want you to normalize discussion of concentration and memory in your office visit. This is something that I tell my patients that just like I'm going to listen to your heart every time you see me and listen to your lungs every time, I'm going to ask you some questions about your memory and concentration because I'm assessing your brain. So a couple of tips. First, when you're doing a mental status exam, don't allow your patient to give up prematurely and don't deviate from the standard instructions. These tests are validated and they're validated for a reason. So when you do the test in January of 2016, you want to be able to do the same test next year and compare um, 2016 to 2017. So don't go rogue and choose your own four words or four calculations. 
Don't offer multiple choice answers. Don't coach your patient and don't be soft on scoring. This is an objective test. So let's talk about the mini-cog. I love the mini-cog because it literally takes two minutes to administer. And the nice thing is that it's been validated in a number of different populations, so it's great in primary care. And there is really very little educational or cultural bias. The, um, the con on the mini-cog is that it's not as sensitive for mild cognitive impairment. We'll talk about a test in a minute for, that is, and because we have less information to interpret. But the sensitivity and specificity of this test do stand up to the mini-mental status exam. So what are we going to do with the mini-cog? So first, we're going to give them three items to remember. And again, use the words that have been validated. If you Google mini-cog, there are lists of different words that have been validated. So I'm going to give my patient my three words that I want him to remember, and I'm going to give him up to three um, times that I have to repeat them to get him to register those words. And what I want to see is if, if he can encode those three words into his memory. Then I'm going to distract him. I'm going to distract him with a clock draw test. So I'm going to have him draw a circle, insert all the numbers as though it were a clock, and draw the hands at 10 past 11. Give all the directions at once. After our brief distraction, we're going to ask him what those three words were. He gets one point for every word he remembers. If he gets the zero out of three words, that does not make the diagnosis of dementia. But what it says is that this person needs further evaluation. I'm concerned. If he gets three out of three words, that's certainly reassuring. But if he gets one out of two words, the clock draw test helps us to break the tie. So a normal clock gets two points. There are no half points or, or in-betweens with the clock draw. They either get it or they don't get it. And so examples, uh, a normal clock, this is a little bit sloppy, but this, we would count this as two points. They've got all the numbers in the right place, and the hands are at 10 past 11. This one's not correct. They get zero points because the hands are at the incorrect time. And similarly, this one's missing a couple numbers, so it's, they get zero points. So what do you do with the patient that perhaps can't use pen and paper? Maybe they have a, a very bad tremor or they have some weakness from a previous stroke. The MIS test is a very useful test. Basically, I have a card in my office that has these four words. They're co more complex words than what we use with the mini-cog. They have these four words, and then I give them a cue or a clue to remember each of those four words. Again, we build in a distraction because we want to see if he can encode those words. So perhaps I'll do my heart exam or lung exam, and then I'll ask him to freely recall those four words. If he can, he gets two points for every one of the words. If I have to give my clue, they only get one point. For anybody that scores four or less, I'm concerned. So many of you have asked me, well, what do I do when the patient's daughter or son or niece calls and says, don't tell my parent I called, but I'm concerned about my parent's memory. This is a great tool. Again, you can administer this tool or ask another member of your team to administer the tool. The 88 is an informant-based tool. It takes three minutes to administer, and it's highly sensitive for dementia not very specific. So again, a, a better screening test, not a necessarily a diagnostic test. If they score positive, or if they answer positively to two or more questions, that's concerning. Okay, so back to our algorithm. We've done our brief cognitive assessment, and now we're concerned enough that we're gonna bring the patient back to the office and dedicate a visit 
toward the cognitive assessment. If they've done well on the Minicog or 88, we'll go back to usual care. Okay, so it's important for us to know what's normal with age, what will we all experience, and then what's pathologic. So with normal aging, we'll all have some decrease in our processing speed. It's also, it becomes more difficult to do rote memorization, so perhaps memorizing a list of things or a telephone number. But our memory for recent events, especially important events, should be intact, and we should be able to perform well on a, mini, uh, on a mental status exam. Now, contrast that with pathologic changes. If an individual has difficulty reasoning, coping with change, retaining new information, or difficulty with any of these domains here, and it's impacting their function, I'm nervous. If especially, and it's not just ADLs and IADLs. That happens later. But if they're starting to notice an impact on their social function or professional functioning, that's when I get concerned. So you might. Uh, may or may not be aware, but the DSM-5 has been updated, and so you'll, the first thing you'll notice is that the term isn't dementia, it's major neurocognitive disorder. Despite that, I am still using the term dementia with patients. I think it would be a big disservice to all the public health efforts that have gone to um, creating dementia-friendly communities if we stopped using that word. So I'm still using the word dementia, but what's interesting to note about the DSM-5 is that uh, memory as uh, memory problems has been de-emphasized and equalized with the other domains. And so they've expanded the domains that a person might have difficulty with to include complex attention and social cognition. So the individual might not have memory concerns at the onset. They might be having difficulty with these other cognitive domains. It has to interfere with function, and then we have to also have effectively ruled out delirium or depression or other mimics. Similarly, MCI in the DSM-5 is called mild neurocognitive disorder. This is that gray zone between normal and dementia. And these folks, the key thing I want you to remember about MCI is that they still function independently. This is a very common condition, and we know that folks with MCI are at heightened risk for developing dementia. We see about 10% per year. It's not inevitable, and some people will revert back to normal cognition. Um, when I'm taking my cognitive history, I really want to go into depth here. And so I always tell um, colleagues that it's kind of like Swiss cheese. And so you have to know where the holes are and you have to know where there's, there's solid cheese because a person might have a very fluid conversation and social norms um, with you and still have significant cognitive impairment. So I'm asking about memory. I want to know about daily memory lapses that they might have. Have you ever paid the same bill twice? Are you, um, are, are, is anybody um, commenting that you tell the same story again and again? Um, I'm interested in language. So a lot of times our patients with early dementia will describe effortful speech, that it's harder to communicate what they want to say or that they're having paraphrasic errors or word-finding difficulties. Um, for visual spatial performance, certainly we ask about driving or getting lost in a previously familiar environment, but I also ask about um, having a difficult time finding things in a visually complex background, so finding your favorite type of cereal at the grocery store. Um, for executive functioning, I ask about things that require planning and organization. So planning a vacation, planning Thanksgiving dinner, things that require multiple steps. 
And then for social or personality changes, oftentimes folks don't have a lot of insight into these changes. This is where their collateral historian or informant comes into play. I'm also interested to know what's going on with function. Like I mentioned before, it's not enough just to ask about ADLs. Those get impacted late on in the course. I'm interested to know what's going on with their day-to-day -day professional or hobbies. I'm also interested to know what are the consequences of any deficits they're having and who is available to help. So things that I'm interested to know are things that could get them into trouble with safety. So do they have access to a stove or oven? Do they have access to a vehicle? And are they still driving? And then also think about, do they have access to the internet and their bank statements and financial statements? Even those with mild cognitive impairment are at high risk for financial exploitation, and we see this every week. I see this in the office that um, um, many of our patients are at high risk to get scammed. So when we're doing a thorough mental status exam, I'm not talking about those brief assessments that we did at our GME. I'm really look, I'm wanting to look at multiple domains. There isn't a one-size-fits-all test. So if you are very comfortable with a full STEAM and you've been doing that since medical school, that's a-okay. But um, I want to share with you these two tests. This is what we're, the majority of us in our geriatrics group are utilizing the Montreal Cognitive Assessment and the Kochman Short Test of Mental Status. The MOCA is great because it uh, covers multiple, multiple domains, and so it's very sensitive in detecting early dementia or mild cognitive impairment. Um, it takes about 10 to 15 minutes to do, so it will take a chunk of time. Um, this test, I will tell you, is great early on, but if your patient has advanced dementia, this can be very frustrating both for you and for the patient, and because it's a hard test. And so I use this early on in the course when I'm suspicious or in a person that has a very high educational attainment. Similarly, the Kochman is a great test because it has multiple cognitive domains. I like that it has a four-item recall built in, so it is more sensitive for picking up those early cognitive changes. And a nice thing about it, like the MOCA, it's free to use. It's not proprietary. So try to build in an, a test of executive functioning into your assessment as well. We, this is what keeps your patient out of trouble. We need our executive capacity to help with volition, planning, purposeful action, and effective performance of daily tasks. The trail making test is another great test. It's free to use and easy to download off of the internet. But a quick and easy thing you can do in the office is the category naming fluency test. So I'm going to give you 60 seconds. I want you to tell me as many words that you can come up with that start with the letter M. Or I want you, I'm going to give you 60 seconds. I want you to tell me as many animals as you can come up with in the next 60 seconds. They should be able to get about 12 or 13 of most basic categories. So a lot of you have asked me, what's the role of neuropsychological testing, and when do I refer my patient for that? Well, it can be very useful if it's an atypical disease presentation, or if there's a big disconnect between what the patient is thinking is going on and what I think is going on, um, or if you have a young patient that continues to work and you need to estimate functional potential and help them plan for the future. But what I would tell you is that not everybody needs to be referred for neuropsychological testing. In primary care, you can make this diagnosis in your office the vast majority of times. This test takes at least two hours, and so it can be very fatiguing or even frustrating for some patients, and there is a significant cost associated with it. So I really feel that I um, uh, 
I have most help when I'm using this test in these situations up here. So after we've done our careful cognitive review of systems, we've done our mental status test, we've done a good neurologic examination, we start to think about what subtype are we talking about. And the vast majority will be Alzheimer's disease. 70 to 80% of the time it's going to be Alzheimer's disease. But it's not uncommon for us in primary care to see dementia with Lewy bodies or Parkinson's disease dementia vascular dementia, a little less common for us to see FTD or these so-called rapidly progressive dementias. But I'm going to give you a couple of buzzwords that I think about when I'm seeing patients about these subtypes. So for Alzheimer's disease, again, this is going to be a more insidious onset, usually after age 65. We're going to have difficulty with memory, especially episodic memory, early on in the course. Might have some difficulty with executive dysfunction. And then later, we tend to see the behavioral challenges and language challenges. And the so-called signature findings on imaging would be medial temporal lobe atrophy or small hippocampal volumes. Now, dementia with Lewy bodies has a number of interesting characteristics, and so when you hear these buzzwords or think about asking about these uh, symptoms, start to think about DLB. So our, our patients with DLB often have this fluctuating cognition. Sometimes it can be hour to hour, and they might almost seem as though they're delirious. Um, and so when I see a patient that keeps going to the emergency room with mental status changes and a so-called UTI, I start to think about this, what did I misdiagnose and it's actually DLB. They might describe well-formed visual hallucinations, and you might see some spontaneous features of Parkinsonism, so some bradykinesia, perhaps some falls and gait changes. Also, as I was talking with Dr. Silber this morning, start to think about this in the patient that has REM sleep behavior disorder or um, dream reenactment or, very, um, or they're very sensitive or have ill side effects from neuroleptics. Vascular dementia, very common in our population in internal medicine, especially those with multiple cardiovascular risk factors. And in medical school, we are taught to look for that stepwise decline. Sometimes it's not as clear as that, and we just might see a more gradual onset of vascular dementia. I've listed some of the cortical and subcortical syndromes that we see in your syllabus. And of course, they have to have infarcts on their imaging. Frontotemporal dementia can um, um, occur in those even younger than our patients that we see with Alzheimer's disease. So it's not uncommon that the person starts to present with symptoms when they're younger than 60. There are two key variants. So there's the behavioral variant where folks have difficulty with uh, executive planning, uh, disinhibition, lack of empathy is often reported or poor judgment, but there's also this primary progressive aphasia variant where the language deficits occur very on in the course of illness. Interestingly, they might do just fine with memory on their cognitive testing early on. So what about high-value laboratory testing? So the American Academy of Neurology says that at the minimum, we should be doing a B12 and a TSH. I think this is very reasonable. These are reversible causes of cognitive impairment. But then that we need to really think about the patient in front of us when we're deciding to do additional testing. So if my patient has a history of prostate cancer, I might be more likely to check calcium in a CBC, certainly with higher risk um, lifestyle um, uh, 
habits, I might check, uh, be more likely to check syphilis or HIV. I don't necessarily check all these tests in every single patient. It just depends on their history. But there's really not a, a, a role for routine genetic testing. So. Uh, not often does this come up, but you will see this in your practice, a rapidly progressive dementia, so somebody that progresses over the course of weeks or months. Now, this is not the time to be parsimonious with our laboratory testing. This is when we want to think about those zebras that cause dementia. So this is the patient with CJD or CNS lymphoma or autoimmune encephalopathy that we need to be thinking about. And so in these settings, I would endorse casting our diagnostic net broadly to think about some of these uh, conditions and include uh, CSF evaluation. Neuroimaging can be very helpful, especially early on in the disease course, not only to rule out structural lesions, but also to improve our diagnostic accuracy. And there is consensus among most guidelines that either non-contrast head CT or MRI would be reasonable, but this is really an individualized decision. If the person has had cognitive impairment for six or seven years prior to presenting in their later stage, I'm less likely to order imaging. Um, pet imaging also has a role, not so much in our practices in primary care, but this is the patient that the diagnosis, we've done everything in the office that we've just talked about. I still am not sure I'm involving my colleagues from neurology or behavioral neurology. They might indeed order an FDG pet, which has um, uh, its role in the evaluation. Now, this is a very um, good test because if it's normal, that basically excludes a neurodegenerative disease. And now there's also amyloid PET that also has a negative predictive value. Not quite ready for prime time in primary care. So I am not ordering this test yet, but my colleagues in neurology are in certain cases. Also not ready for prime time would be the CSF biomarkers and genetic testing. So back to the bedside. We've done our thorough evaluation. We're ready to tell the patient what we think is going on. Probably the most important thing is how we communicate the diagnosis, okay? So this is a time not to make the, uh, not to break this news over the telephone or via our portal, but they need to come in and they need to come in with a family member. And we need to make sure that we're very clear with the diagnosis. And I, what I see a lot of people doing is often referring to this as mild cognitive impairment when it's really dementia. So this is a time to be precise with our language, and that's what our patients want. They want an honest uh, perspective about what's going on. And what I'm not doing is telling them all the things they can't do anymore. What I'm doing with this visit is telling them the things that they can continue to do that I want them to continue doing. And then I tell them, you're going to have lots of questions when you go home, write them down, and I'm going to see them back. So the promise that we have to give these folks is that we're going to bring them back for proactive care. It's also important that you all are familiar with the various resources that are available for caregivers and for those with dementia in your community. So you need to know who gives respite care, who does transportation or medical transportation, where the support groups are. This is something that um, you'll want to connect with your local social worker and find out where these resources are in your community. And then, of course, if you can give them a written summary of their visit, even better. Now, this is one of my most important slides and pleas to all of you. We also need to communicate with each other through the medical record about what's going on. So in your past medical history, 
I want to know what's the diagnosis, what subtype do you think this person has, what's their functional status, have they ever had delirium or behavioral expressions, who's helping them at home, and what their goals of care are. If we had this built into our notes, that would really take some of the headache away from our hospitalists and ER physicians and ICU docs because they would know where this person is at in the continuum. In Minnesota, as I mentioned before, we have a great grassroots approach to creating dementia-friendly communities, and that's called Act on Alzheimer's Disease. I bring that up because their website has a number of fantastic resources that are free to use. So if you work with learners, there are a number of different presentations you can use in your teaching, free of, you, or free of uh, cost. If you want to uh, have an algorithm posted in your office, there's great practice tools for you, and it really helps you manage the patient throughout the continuum. So I use this website a lot. So my take-home messages this morning, first, con consider changing your paradigm for how you think about dementia. Think about it as a chronic illness, and consider dementia as an organizing principle of care, because it's really the game-changer diagnosis that impacts everything else we do. Don't run away from making the diagnosis. Don't sugarcoat this as MCI. Uh, and then utilize valid, reliable mental status tests in the office and, and utilize them in the way that they were tested. And then utilize imaging when it will change your management. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find additional podcasts and other videos from Selected Topics in Internal Medicine at mailtalks.com. Mail Talks is a copyrighted program from Mail Clinic.